You're listening to the Rural Advancement Podcast. Rural Advancement provides resources to empower, equip, and encourage rural pastors and churches. Join our community by visiting us at ruraladvancement.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Rural Advancement. This is the podcast that is by rural leaders and for rural leaders. And it is our goal every single week to bring you content that is not just spoken to the rural context, but is spoken by those who get it, those who have uh, lived, who are from, who grew up around, who have ministered in and around the rural context, and who can speak words that don't just make sense logically, but make sense because they've lived it out. They've experienced the highs and lows, the ebbs and flows of rural ministry. If you are a volunteer leader, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, or someone just interested in doing God's work in a small place, we are so glad that you tuned in today. My name is Joe Epley, and I'm your host. Today, we are between interviews, right? A lot of times on this podcast, we love to do interviews with other rural leaders, and we are excited in the coming weeks to uh, have a few of those, and um, again, just super pumped for the content that's going to come from those. Uh, But in between, I was thinking uh, this week of what to maybe uh, talk about, what snapshot of the rural church we could really focus on. And I found an opportunity to kind of marry two of my favorite things. Obviously, one of them being this podcast and those who listen to it. Uh, It is one of my greatest delights to be able to bring content that is aimed, again, right at the rural church. But also, another one of my loves is history. Uh, Specifically, I mean, really all history, but specifically church history. I love seeing the way that the work of God moved and, and flowed throughout the world, throughout, you know, since the time of Jesus, right on into the present age. And one of the things I, I think I want us to maybe dwell on in the year 2023 is how much of our history really involves uh, the rural church. And whether they called it rural um, is probably not really the right question to be asking. Uh, I can't imagine that uh, people who predominantly lived in small towns really thought, oh, you know, this is the rural gospel um, throughout history. But it does stand to reason that um, even throughout our history, even going back as far as the, you know, from the beginning of the movement, uh, small town church, small places, small congregations have been a pivotal part of the work that God is doing uh, in spreading his message throughout the world. And so today we have a topic that I am excited to set the scene for. All right, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm telling you the lessons are going to be awesome, but they require a bit of good old-fashioned storytelling. If there's one thing I know about the rural church is that we have quite an adept way of making a 10-minute conversation into a 40-minute conversation. We're not quite going to go that long, but I do want us to take some time and set the scene properly. And so you're going to sit back and hopefully hear a good story, but it will result in some incredible lessons, right? And so stay tuned on the podcast. Again, maybe you love history, uh, maybe you don't, but I promise you the story we're going to share today is just an incredible part of the body of Christ and how it moved um, throughout the ancient world. And so to set the scene, right, I got to get in the zone. I'm excited to talk about this. I'm excited to set the stage But to set the scene, we're going to take ourselves way back in history. And we're going to go to the late 400s, also known as the 5th century, and the early 6th century. Think of all the major players of this time. Uh, We've got the Roman Empire. Um, Famously, the Roman Empire obviously lasted for, I mean, a thousand years. And 
right around 476 AD, this is, again, 440 years after the death of Christ, we have this pivotal moment where the Christian church in the West, the, the Roman Empire in the West, actually, uh, falls, right? Um, there is no longer any Roman emperor in, in the city of Rome. There's actually no Roman Empire in all of Europe. Um, we still have the Byzantine Empire, Constantinople, um, and kind of that whole eastern side of the empire that included Jerusalem and Syria and Egypt and all these places. But again, places uh, in Europe, you know, what we have now known in the modern world is Germany, France, Britain, Italy, Spain, Portugal, these places no longer have this unified Roman Empire. And you say, why is this important to the story today? Like I said, no detail will be wasted. But as the power of the emperors fell in the Western world, the power of the Pope grew. And again, the Pope is not necessarily an idea that, that originated in the pages of the New Testament, and yet around 460 AD, there was a pope named Leo the Great, and he was kind of credited with really bringing um, the papacy um, to kind of this, this forefront of the conversation. It's around this time that we see the popes really start to claim a lot of power. Um, it used to be that Rome was kind of equal with these four other you know, major seats of Christianity. You had Jerusalem, you had Constantinople, you had Antioch, you had Alexandria, and then you had Rome. And these were considered these five major places of Christian influence. But around this time, uh, the Pope kind of starts to, well, as we know it, be the Pope. And, and he starts to say things like, well, yes, uh, Rome is is equal, but it's first among equals. And, and Rome was founded by Peter, the Roman church, and all these things. And so really, we see the, the modern idea of the Pope of the Catholic Church emerge right as the Western Empire falls. And at this time, the one defining characteristic of the Catholic Church in this medieval period is that a lot of what they did was based on power. Now, is this a comment about, you know, Catholicism in our day and age? No, this is an analysis of medieval Catholicism, right? This is the Catholic Church, really one of the, you know, the only church of the time that was legally recognized. And, uh, and so the Catholic Church at that time found itself in a bit of a power vacuum. There was no longer an emperor, and so the Pope kind of had to be the law. You know, you, you saw bishops kind of step into political offices. You saw... Um, the Pope kind of take over not only as the religious leader of the West uh, of Western Europe, but also as the um, political leader in a lot of ways. The Pope became the one who helped establish kings and benefited from the halls of power. And with that, the Roman system and how the church of the day and age spread to those around it uh, really started to change, right? Obviously, we look at the pages of the New Testament, and we see this model of believers going from city to city and preaching wherever they could, and it was a very grassroots movement, and, and there was, you know, the, the baptism and then the kind of consecration of leaders, and, and Paul sometimes had to rein them in, and, and there was this whole kind of free-form movement that was the Christian church. But around this time, we discover that the Roman church is really changed fundamentally in its organization. It is no longer a grassroots church. It is no longer this, this small town setting. This is the halls of political power. Rome was now intimately connected with civil leadership, political authority, the making and breaking of kings. And the church 
ever so slowly began to have the life squeezed out of it, because what was once the sincere movement of faith became mired and mixed up with the halls of political power. And so into this setting, you find our subject today, right? Our subject today is a movement called Celtic Christianity. And it's going to involve some major players. But what I love most about this movement, and again, hopefully you're still tuning in. Don't get lost in the history. The whole point is that the Roman churches of this day and age was in a rough place. And enter the scene, Celtic Christianity. It starts out as this grassroots movement that includes arguably one of the most famous and well-known saints, mostly for leprechauns and, and a day on March 17th, but it actually involves the real story of St. Patrick. And the story of St. Patrick is intriguing because it's really the story of how the church was able to recapture a lot of its energy, a lot of its life, a lot of its ability to reach out to the world around it. And it comes not through this halls of power, not through the big cities, not through the political seats of importance, but it starts with St. Patrick and a bunch of small towns. And some of you who are listening might start to put the first puzzle piece together and some of you who are listening might begin to put the first puzzle piece together and recognize that what we're talking about today is how a predominantly rural movement brought life to the Christian church at a time when it was very far from its original mission. So let's dig into it. A lot of the material I'm going to be using today, and this link will be in the show notes, is from a book entitled The Celtic Way of Evangelism, how Christianity Can Reach the West Again, by George G. Hunter III. It's a beautiful book. It's a quick read, but it really highlights um, not only how St. Patrick um, existed, how the Christian church expanded, but also um, the lessons it has for our modern context. So, with the scene set, we understand the Roman church. We understand we're going to be talking about St. Patrick. We understand that Christianity in the late 400s, early 500s, um, this is 400 plus years after the death of Christ, is in a rough place. And what's needed is a movement, and that movement begins with St. Patrick. So, St. Patrick grew up in northeast England. He was part of one of the Celtic people, technically the Britons, who were populating the British Isles. He had an aristocratic family, and that had kind of Romanized when the Romans occupied Britain, because the Roman legions used to be stationed there. They brought their Roman culture, and a lot of rich folk... Uh, jumped on board and said, well, we want to be kind of fancy like the Romans, culturally literate. We want to kind of take that step. Um, And so he was more culturally Roman. His first language was Latin. His family was Christian, and his grandfather was even a priest. So he knew some of the Catholic teaching, um, but he kind of honestly uh, didn't really actually enjoy Christianity. As a youth, he definitely was rebellious, and he definitely kind of made fun of the clergy and saw the church as very out of touch. And when he was 16, there was a band of Celtic pirates from Ireland who invaded the region where he lived, and they captured Patrick and a lot of other young men and forced them onto a ship, sailed to Ireland, and sold them into slavery. They sold Patrick to a prosperous tribal chief, and they, uh, he put Patrick to work herding cattle. So again, rural pastors, rural leaders. What's so cool about St. Patrick is you find him herding cattle. Uh, a lot of us who are Midwest rural understand fully that herding cattle, agriculture, these kind of countryside scenes are the hotbed of what it means to be the rural church. And Patrick finds himself enslaved in Ireland, kind of herding cattle, you know, doing this very common job. 
During these years, he experienced these in, these three really profound changes. First of all, um, he began to reflect on and love the natural revelation of God. Uh, he actually testifies that he, he was pastoring his flocks daily, and he would pray a number of times each day. More and more, as he observed nature around him and, and felt in the stars and, and the cattle and the trees and the hills, you know, he felt the natural presence of God. And it says that he was praying up to a hundred times every day and in the night nearly as often. He became a man of profound prayer. He had become a devout Christian. Second, he actually ended up um, kind of understanding the Irish Celtic people. Seems ironic to us, but even as a slave, Patrick began to learn the culture. He began to really understand um, the Irish language, the Celtic language. He understood their their culture, what was important to them, what, what they valued, what they needed, what they lacked. He kind of, as again, to borrow a very rural term, became of the soil of the people of Ireland, right? And then finally, he kind of came to love the people that he was enslaved to. You know, he identified with them. He, he began to long for them to be reconciled with God. I identify a lot with the story so far. I moved to rural, not as an insider to rural, but as an outsider. And yet, even as an outsider, I remember, I mean, I don't feel like I was enslaved, not to be too dramatic, but I remember this journey that I went on where I, I guess I understood mentally the rural church, and then I experienced the rural church, and then I grew to love the rural church. And I remember thinking, I want to be here. I want to be of the soil. I want to be with these people because they deserve, you know, kind of this, this clarion call of the gospel. You know, they deserve the love that we can give to these, these communities. And so Patrick ends up loving his captors. And yet, it, as the story goes, in a dream, an angel appeared to him and said, get up, Patrick. You know, your years of enslavement are over. You're leaving Ireland. So as the story goes, he gets on a ship the next morning. Uh, he runs away, gets on a ship, and makes it back to England. No one's quite sure what he does the next part of his life, but he ends up potentially being trained as a priest. He ends up back in England. He ends up kind of on the same page with the Catholic Church. But internally, he's got this insane awakening that has happened, right? This, this man of prayer, this deep mission, missional drive. Um, and so as it goes, he's actually at the age of 48, which is really honestly pretty old for the time. A lot of people died before that. He experiences a dream where an angel came and showed him letters from his former captors in Ireland in this dream. As he read one of the letters, he imagined that he heard the voice of those people and they cried out saying, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. He woke up interpreting this dream as the, as the very Macedonian call to reference Paul. And it says that uh, he took a group of people with him, set out for Ireland, and uh, the Pope even blessed his mission. He's, a, he's ordained a bishop, appointed to Ireland, and he's sent out as history's first missionary bishop. And so he ends up there in in you know, what's potentially AD 432. So again, as I mentioned, right around 450, 460, you find the church in this dire place. But even in AD 430, you really, you really understand that like the church in the Roman way is not in a good place, you know? And so you've got this need for revival. And so Patrick shows up to Ireland, to this group of barbarians, to this group of people who really were way outside the Roman fold. And what he starts to do is nothing short of flipping the entire way that missions was done on its head. A lot of the Roman church would target big cities. They would appoint bishops. Those bishops would technically, you know, usually work with these pretty pretty powerful kings or leaders. 
uh, and they would use kind of their political place of influence and authority. They would convert, you know, these leaders. They would convert, uh, you know, the political arm of the country where they were at. And they would establish churches. And then from there, taking care of the people became the second wave of how the Roman church operated. And it was very strictly controlled. This was a movement of ordained priests. They did all the masses in Latin. They didn't really even believe in doing things in the language of the people. And yet Patrick, from the very beginning, takes a totally different, and I would argue a totally rural approach. So stick with me, because again, we're uh, getting to the fun part where these lessons become not only super clear, but speak a lot of encouragement to us as rural pastors. So Patrick started out by coming into communities. He would look at these, you know, because Ireland was divided into all these tiny, you know, we would almost call them chieftains. You know, they had these warlords or these druids that they would follow. They were very tribal. And so you had these small areas where he would come into an area and he would just ask, he would say, hey, can we live and work among you? And it was not so much that he was appealing to the chieftain and saying, will you convert and then convert your tribe and, and bow to us and pay taxes to us. It was not Roman. It was, it was just very much saying, hey, can we build a building on the edge of your town? Can we find a spot? Can we build a monastery? And can we live and work among you? And so instead of the Romans imposing their culture, Patrick said, can we just live among your people? Instead of trying to convert people and then bring them into the community, um, Patrick did the opposite. He would make monasteries, but these monasteries were not places for people to run away from the world. They were places for people to engage. He invited people over for dinner. You know, they lived and worked. They asked questions. They sat around a fire. They tended sheep together. They, you know, the community was, was welcome at the monastery. The monastery was welcome in the community. And again, these places became of the soil. They mixed and mingled among the people they were serving, and they didn't do it with some sense of Roman superiority. They did it as learners, as people who not only wanted to respect and work through the Celtic culture, but wanted to reach God right in the middle of it. What a powerful truth, right? And we're going to get to these lessons. Some of you are already shaping up with where this is going to go. But it's huge, right? These lessons are huge for the rural church. And so these, these Celtic leaders, Patrick and others, they started these monasteries and they were accessible to people. They were much more diverse. They didn't really have a lot of ordained priests. You know, it really was a movement of lay people. And again, some of you listening are going, oh, the rural church, lay people, that sounds like kind of like what we do. You know, there was a wall around um, kind of these monasteries, but it wasn't really an enclosure to keep out the world. But it was an area that was created to kind of signify an alternative way of living in Christ. It was this incredible model of absolutely authentic community. And over and over... These people emphasized kind of this living and working. And from there, they would establish the work. They would find interested people. And what would end up happening is that these people would belong to these communities. And it was almost as if one day these barbarians, these Irish Celts, woke up and realized, man, we believe Christianity. Will you help us convert? And so you had this very belong before you become. It was very much a live and work among them. And then through this living of life together, the breaking of bread, the working alongside, these people became converts. Those converts became leaders. And those leaders, not ordained priests, mind you, just lay leaders, became the, the tool through which the work expanded. And monasteries popped up here and popped up there all over Ireland. And then, if that wasn't enough, then the Celtic church re-evangelized all of Western Europe. They sent missionaries into France, Switzerland, Italy. They, they sent it into other parts of Britain. 
Um, they sent him into Belgium, into Austria, to Germany, to all these different places. And so through several generations of sustained missionary, Celtic Christianity kind of re-evangelized uh, Europe. They really were an affront to the Catholic Church because they didn't show up and ask people to be Roman. They just asked them to be Christian. They didn't impose on them the set of values that was foreign. They just said, let's live and work and move within your culture. The, uh, the Roman branch of the church at this time had really, in fact, stopped growing. And yet Celtic Christianity restored this sense of movement. And all of it happened outside of the halls of power. Problem is, is uh, a ton of these Celtic um, priests or Celtic lay people really didn't conform to Roman manners of dress or how Rome calculated calendars. And eventually, uh, the Roman church fought back and they reestablished control. They, they wanted to kind of bring the Celts into alignment with what was viewed as the Roman way of doing things. And so sadly... After a number of centuries, Celtic Christianity all but stamped out by this kind of sense of Roman oppression. And you say, Joe, what's the point of all this? Well, the point is, is that this church, this Celtic movement, is a powerful example of what it looks like for a, a rural church to function at its best. Because here's the thing. When we look at the qualities that made the Roman church work, it was the way they communicated it was the way that they talked. They did community. They did mission. They ended up finding new metaphors. They, they had a lot of principles of living life alongside. And so the lesson to be learned from this kind of Celtic church experiment, this movement, this thing that St. Patrick started, is that the rural church works. You know, I think that sometimes we get this kind of idea that the rural church will get us by, but there's bigger and better out there. But the rural church is not just designed to survive, it's designed to thrive. And it has an important part to play in the body of Christ. St. Patrick was of the soil. He learned the culture of the people that were there. He had to earn the right to speak into their country. A lot of missionaries around the world and a lot of rural pastors will tell you this journey is the same where they're at. You know, I, I share my own journey of living in the same town for nine years and still feeling, still feeling like there is times where I am still being opened up to, that trust is still being gained. And I think that a lot of times we have to understand that, that the rural church is so worth investing in. It's the doing and the living of life alongside. St. Patrick didn't view his churches as places to run from the world, but as places where the entire world was welcome to eat at the table. You know, I had someone comment to me. Um, we were talking about the difference between large towns and small towns, and, and I made a point. I said, you know, the tough part is that if I have a conflict with anybody in my small town, I'm still going to see them at the grocery store tomorrow. And I still might be sitting next to them at a community dinner, and I still might be serving them coffee. And, like, it's these interactions that the rural church champions and is good at that really highlight such a powerful principle of how the church moves and grows. So rural pastors, you're not just accidentally serving and slaving away in your community. You're not accidentally present. This is intentional. This is something that is powerful. This is something that at one time was the driving force for the church finding its footing again as a missional movement of God. I think of St. Patrick and I think of how he immersed himself in the folk culture you know, and I would argue that small towns have a lot of this subculture where, where the stories and the poetry and the storytelling and, and the metaphors that were used and the imagination of the local people, St. Patrick engaged it all. He didn't impose some idea that didn't fit. He didn't say, well, this is what worked in the church down the road that had a lot bigger population. This is what worked. This is the language we're going to speak. He said, no, we're going to speak the language of the people. 
we're going to do things in the way of the people. And I think one of the final lessons for rural churches, and we're actually going to hear a lot more about this uh, in an interview next week, um, but the rural church, St. Patrick's Church, was a church that, that multiplied. It was a church that didn't believe that it was somehow too small to plant more churches. It was a church that by nature planted more communities because those ingredients that were found in, in Ireland are replicated in small towns all over the sense of community, the sense of hospitality, the sense of welcoming people and sharing beliefs over a dinner table. And so I guess um, for today, this episode is really just an encouragement. It's a look at history because here's what I need you to hear, rural pastors, rural leaders, rural volunteers. The church is alive and well, not in spite of rural churches, but because of the rural church. For multiple generations, the Celtic movement sustained Christianity throughout all of Europe. And just like that today, when I look at rural churches and rural pastors, I see the potential of people and their ability to sustain the movement of God in our modern day era. And so I hope that as you listen to this, um, you get encouraged. You know, you get encouraged and you understand that, like, again, history is is full of these unknown individuals because as cool as St. Patrick was, uh, he died eventually, right? As everyone does. And yet for generations, nameless Celtic Christians took the gospel to anywhere and everywhere, every countryside, every small village, and they set up shop, they, they did community, they lived life with others, and they spread the gospel. And that's what you're doing today. You're setting up shop in community and living the gospel with other people. Your work is important. You matter. I'm excited. Don't forget to tune in next week. We have a great interview uh, with a gentleman who did some church planning in upstate New York. And you're going to hear his heart on, again, why it's so important for the rural church to to grow, to be valued, and to multiply. So tune into that. And in the meantime, uh, check us out on Spotify or on Apple Podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Subscribe. Uh, definitely helps us get the word out there. And if you know of a leader who could use this podcast, please hook them up with it. You know, let them know. Let them know what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're teaching. If you have an idea for an interview, you can reach out to me. My email is joseph.g.epley at gmail.com. Uh, that'll be in the show notes. Um, you can reach out to us at Rural Advancement on the Facebook page. Um, but anyways, it's been a uh, hopefully a good conversation for you, a good look into history, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.